Thank you for joining our inaugural Thought Leadership Talks today, hosted by Bespoke Luxury Magazine. I'm Cody Vichinsky, president and founder of Bespoke. I'd like to give a quick background on Bespoke before I welcome our esteemed guest to today's panel discussion. When my partners and I founded Bespoke, we did it with the sole intention of providing value through innovation. As such, Bespoke has become an ecosystem of luxury service offerings anchored by our three most notable companies, Bespoke Real Estate, Bespoke Marketing, and Bespoke Luxury Magazine. Bespoke Real Estate is the only firm in the world to focus solely on 10 million and above projects and properties. We have a very unique model with no independent agents and dedicated divisions of industry specialists. We've sold $5 billion since our inception of 2014. Uh, Bespoke Marketing is a full-service integrated branding and marketing agency that it works with some of the world's most esteemed brands. And Bespoke Luxury Magazine is the editorial expression of Bespoke's brand. Our newest issue, The Prosperity Report, is launching next week, so be sure to check it out. The mission behind the Thought Leadership Talk series is to provide a platform to share knowledge with the world's leading experts of luxury and topics that cater to ultra high net worth individuals. Our guests today are Sagra Mathera de Rosen and Matteo Ati, both joining us from London. So dear Sagra, dear Matteo, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. Uh, thanks for joining us on the topic of the ever-changing definition of luxury. It's a true honor to have such esteemed industry veterans and experts today with us. You two have an extensive career in luxury. Uh, in various spaces, in various arenas, be it research, investing, advertising, and strategizing. So I'm sure our audience is going to get a wealth of knowledge, no pun intended. So please, Sagra, please introduce yourself and tell us about your professional background and how you got into the luxury space. Well, thank you, Cody. And um, uh, first of all, thank you for um, inviting me to this fabulous session. Um, so I am originally from Spain. And I studied in the U.S. and uh, lived in New York for a few years. Um, and I came to the world of luxury through the world of finance uh, and investment banking. So after uh, my MBA, I joined um, uh, Morgan Stanley and um, I landed in the luxury goods team, which at the time was um, one of the pioneers on, on taking companies in the luxury space public. First job was actually working on the IPO of Gucci. That tells you how long I've been around since uh, since last century. Uh, and then uh, I, uh, I spent, uh, I would say the bulk of my career was at uh, JP Morgan. I was the uh, head of the luxury with team research. And, um, and after that, um, I abandoned the world of investment banking and moved still from the investment standpoint into more direct investments into, into uh, luxury goods companies, fashion companies, uh, lifestyle companies through family offices and uh, working with private equity, various private equity firms. Uh, in the process, I also wrote a book about uh, Jimmy Choo, that was also a few years ago. And um, yeah, I continued to involved with, with with the sector uh, in in different in different capacities also as a personal investor thank you Matteo well 
Sagra, it's nice to see that our path crossed and we never came across each other in real life and we're here uh, getting to know each other better through Bespoke. So thank you, Cody, for inviting me and uh, introducing me also to Sagra. Um, I actually started uh, in uh, Gucci and it was my wife's fault. I was uh, studying uh, communications and branding uh, in Bologna and she said, well, if you want to do your final essay on luxury, you should and, and, and branding, you should definitely look at luxury and fashion because that is where everything is happening. And my first job with, was with uh, Tom Ford in uh, the Gucci time and De Sole. We were just uh, in London on two different floors. Of course, I was nothing to do with them. Uh, I was just an assistant back then, but that's where I started and uh, stayed with Caring, moved to Bottega Veneta. Um, mm. I did a bit of a tech uh, side on Nokia when Nokia was uh, one of the largest brands on earth and then moved back to london with paul smith and now i've been five years at visited in private aviation which is uh, the highest level of luxury you can think of of course and uh, during the past eight years i've also been uh, a teacher of luxury business development at the international university of monaco uh, which always is the funniest part of my job because I go back to school uh, every year and I talk to the students and they remind me not only how many years I've been doing this job but also how this job uh, uh, needs to change every day to keep up with the definition of luxury which is what we're talking today. I, I think your experiences segue perfectly into our first question which is this evolution of luxury. And so in your own words, how do you feel that luxury has evolved over the years that you've been in these various positions in these various industries? Well, as you say, I uh, walk through my past uh, with this question, right? So when I started <laughs> back then, uh, I think lux the first luxury I met was all about intrinsic product value. We were talking mm -hmm. about materials, design, manufacturing, uh, we were talking a lot about scarcity and establishing really the value. Mm -hmm. uh, then uh, in the following years, uh, it became all about the brands. And the reason for that was we were looking for a model that was scalable and exportable. Uh, luxury had been for a long time a matter of some Italian brands, some French brands, and we wanted to turn it into a, a worldwide uh, industry. So it was about brands and scalability. After that, after we conquered the whole world, the model changed again and it became all about trends. So it became the phase of the, the eat bag. It was the hit designer. Why? Because we wanted to hit the frequency button. How often can we be talked about as brands? And then it morphed again from trends that were too expansive and became too mass market into the world of experiences. So we went into the world of retail theater, of uh, uh, the latest things to do, etc. What we were trying to do was to capture more time with our customers, keeping them closer, making them more engaged, right? So by not only more of their wallet, but having more of the lifetime engagement. And nowadays it's all switching back again because with so many categories, brands, product categories, things to do, we're turning it back into relevance and saying it's now about making your time your own again. It's about ownership of time, what to mm -hmm. do with it, 
spending your time wisely, not only your money wisely. And we're entering the era of purpose where brands are deeply integrated in your life. So very different phases for luxury. I, I think that's very insightful. Uh, sorry, Saga, go ahead. I apologize. No, no, no. I think I, I, I will agree with that. I think that we had a, a similar experience. I think that in the earlier days, um, luxury was much more about craft and about products and about the intrinsic value of that um, of that product. And because brands didn't really exist as, as we have come to think of brands today, right? I mean, it's a, it's a relatively new construct uh, in, in my view. And after that, we went through the whole process of democratization of fashion, right? That it was, as you said, available to a much wider audience. Many more people had access to it. Um, and I mean, and, and we're seeing that even today with a certain, we call it premiatization of everything, you know, from mattresses to, to coffee, to uh, cleaning products, there has been a complete elevation of, of the product itself um, that, you know, then leads us on to that kind of experiential um, part of the, of, the, of the business of luxury that is very prevalent today. Um, and the other observation that I will have is that um, in the past, trends were originated much more by the uh, wealthy, the, the people that had a lot of money, the upper class, so to speak. Well, I feel that today a lot of the trends that are shaping the world of luxury are more coming up from the streets and from um, a consumer is more aspirational than from, from the top of the wealth. Mm -hmm. So in a way, would you both say that luxury is almost cyclical or is it on this linear motion where it's just continuing to evolve or do we find ourselves going back towards some of the roots that we saw in the last few decades? I would say that it's like Italian cuisine is you have a lot of ingredients and you have the time when it's all about the tomato and then there is the time for mozzarella and then is the time <laughs> for the perfect lasagna. Uh, I think the ingredients are there, but how we mix them up and the different recipes that luxury comes mm. up with, it's not necessarily cyclical, but definitely you find some key ingredients that are played up and down at different times. Yes, and for me, there is something that is, that is prevalent in luxury um, and that I, I, I find that is critical to the definition. I, I think there is a certain, so luxury for me needs to uh, pass the test of time, right? So there, there needs to be some longevity to what we will consider true luxury that has some ability to uh, to last um, in time. So that because there are a lot of uh, brands of the moment, and I, I think the, an, an analogy could be with music. You know, there are some great musicians that are classics that are always relevant and important, and some others are of a moment in time that is very specific. So I think that we the analogy with cuisine or with with music is a little bit the same i mean there there is some things that are pillars and some others that are, are relevant to each moment in time i think in the real estate space mm -hmm. at the very least what covid has done to to 
to couple your answers with at least our own experience has brought the home back towards, uh, again, fundamentally, you know, people need shelter, mm -hmm. they need space, but COVID has created perhaps new definitions of what that home means to people and what a home office means to people who are now working from home or outdoor space and fresh air. Uh, have you seen similar uh, new definitions because of COVID in your own individual spaces? Uh, we ha definitely have. Uh, and I think, Cody, what you see as working from home uh, and you have nice homes to use as a reference, um, we see as uh, working from everywhere, meaning that the travel has not become uh, a weekend thing. It's not so much planned uh, as a one-off opportunity but we see it as a part of an ongoing new dynamic where uh, the, the definition of space is changing as time becomes becomes multi-purpose so the spaces are changing as well not only we have wi-fi everywhere but we have family and friends with us everywhere we uh, have different networks in different places so every place has become a room your your um uh, your plane, your jet is your own uh, lounge. Uh, your uh, New York apartment is your party place uh, and your uh, Ibiza uh, villa is uh, your relaxation room. So this sense of space that has expanded because we're not spending only one hour on the plane, we're not spending only one weekend in Ibiza, we're spending months there, has made every place change its meaning. And so this new notion of space, we're looking at houses and offices differently, and uh, but also on the streets, there are bike lanes that were not there before during COVID. Uh, we need jet parking spots in new airports. Uh, the underground tunnels are changing the meaning, and uh, we're conquering the air with a vertical takeoff uh, um, um, helicopters, and uh, we're looking at going into space uh, uh, as well. So I think the whole notion of space during the last 12 months has dramatically changed because we do f more things in a space we're in. So every space had to evolve. Yes, I, I, I will agree with that. I think that I think that how are home... you seeing it, Sagra? Yeah, I, I, I will agree with that. And I think I mean, home was already becoming more and more and more important as a as a, uh, as a destination if we want if we want to live where we kind of um, spend and invest a little bit more on our, on our homes and i think that this has been accelerated just like many other trends in the world and in luxury and you know the same way that we have seen a dramatic move towards digital and digital channels that probably have, you know, conquering six months what was going to be done in 10 years. I think the, the, that also applies to, to, to the home and the relevance of where, where you live, right? I mean, um, I think COVID has been quite a Darwinistic experience, I would say, for brands uh, in general and brands in, in luxury as well. So we've seen that, you know, the survival of the fittest to, to a certain degree and uh, and if you have survived, you're probably in a in a better position to, you know, to keep moving forward and to progress. Um, and 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 I think in the case of real estate, because over the last few years, 
a lot of it was about, you know, experience of our possessions, as you say, it was about traveling, about where you ate, what you ate more than what you had. And I think that, you know, experiential world was taken away um, from us to a degree. So the home and some more kind of hard assets in luxury have become uh, impo more important to get. So in your opinions, have has COVID created a sharp sort of chasm in time, a delineation, a before and after, if you will? Has it changed the way luxury is perceived in, in all industries? Or mm -hmm. are we just experiencing sort of this moment in time that everything seems to be in a vacuum and then maybe it goes back to the way it was or are we now on a new path? Sagar, why don't you continue on with your thoughts because I think you were heading well, down this direction. Okay, my view, I, I don't know. I don't know that's the, the answer to that question. What I, what I think I know is that there is two kinds of people in the world. And for some people and from some luxury uh, customers and, and uh, uh, wealthy people, this experience would have changed some uh, behaviors and some outlook on life. And then for another part, they can't wait to get back to, to business and to the way it used to be. There is no change that I can see in the horizon. And I think even here in London, we, we witnessed that, that the minute that we a lot of people were let let go. They were like, the restaurants were full, the shops were full, everything was back to the way it used to be. So I think for, you know, a percentage of people, I don't know what that percentage is, some things would have changed and maybe there is like a different purpose or a different consciousness about, you know, whether it's privacy or space or, um, uh, or health and well-being. But I will say for a vast majority, um, life will go back if it goes back to exactly the same way and they will be very happy about that. So I think the change is going to be somewhat, but it's not going to be a radical change. Mateo, what Drastic. do you think? Makes sense. <laughs> Some dynamics are going to stay. Uh, the digitalization of the experiences is definitely going to stay. The feel good in your pajama is going to stay because that's too tempting for everyone. I'm sorry to feel like you can have a private life that you is just your private life uh, and you're proud of it and you're nurturing it because spending a full year at home, I think, has changed the parameters and the dynamics. But I also think that we will appreciate more certain moments. I mean, I, I can't wait to be back at the office. I can't wait to be back in a restaurant. And I think it's just a reminder of... Uh, how some of the things we have in life are just beautiful and uh, i think we'll forget that soon but for the next six months to a year after everything slows down and we can feel a little bit more relaxed around ourselves and our own lives and other people i think we would have a sense of appreciation what will happen after i mean cody uh, luxury changes every three five four years maximum so that is the time limit for my crystal sphere here yeah. Well, that's good advice. Uh, enjoy life, I think, is the most important takeaway of it. Switching gears, uh, when we look at the distribution of wealth in the world, particularly in USA, Europe, Asia, India, how would you say, <clears throat> excuse me, 
how would you say that these primary markets differ in their perception in the definition of luxury and the expected level of service? Mateo, why don't you take it? Okay. Um, listen, I, I'm always the European uh, snob uh, saying uh, <laughs> uh, Italians invented design and invented luxury and all this, right? So I'll try not to be that for once. Um, I do believe uh, as a marketer that luxury is a matter of having a choice. It's having enough uh, uh, opportunities to decide what you want to drink tonight, where you want to sleep tonight, or what you want to do with your time. That is the meaning of luxury to me, having that choice, right? At that point, then, luxury is in the eyes of the beholder. So luxury is not what Matteo defines as luxury, or what Sagra or Cody define as luxury, is uh, what do we perceive to be something of a gift, something of an upper choice, something that makes a relevance where we are happy to part ourselves with a lot of our money or a lot of our time to be able to complete and do. So if uh, in one region spending a fortune on a wedding is the most important thing, and that is where you want to part your money, that is your luxury. If it is having the most amazing second home for your holidays that you can share with your friends, because that is the way that you want to spend your precious two weeks of holidays a year, then that is your luxury. Whether it is being able to pour that money into a new business like it is in uh, uh, China at the moment and saying that is my luxury and all the profit I make, I put it into a new business and I see my business scale up. That is your business luxury mentality. Is it gifting for friends? That's another luxury mentality. So the cultural attributes of what constitutes value will shift consumption patterns. So it's what we as a tribe define as luxury and we see as luxury within each other will define the new nature of luxury and that changes all the time the more time i spend with american people the more i see certain sides of luxury that i didn't see before <laughs> the more time i spend with indian friends or russian friends then i see other sides of luxury so definitely new wealth is coming up into the world new definitions and region new regions and new definitions and cultural definitions are going to shape luxury because there's going to be more buyers that define luxury in a different way and so the level of services are going to change if you think of the luxury uh, of the service levels that we experience in asia i mean the, the level is way above what we see sometimes in europe or in the us right mm. uh, this if you see the level of manufacturing uh, of certain countries that is going to be the, the the next relevance as we said before it's a recipe and different elements are dialed up and down depending on how many buyers are going to request that as the key ingredient. Good response. Sagra? Well, I, I will say that, you know, the expectations of luxury, of service and luxury, if we, if we kind of close the definition to what we consider right, luxury goods or luxury experiences are relatively um, global and consistent with some differences which are you know somewhat stereotypical to 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 be honest and they and they change quite rapidly but i will say that for me europe has always had the more kind of traditional and actually the most complex um 
consumer of luxury and, and of luxury experiences. They're like, there is a little bit more, I would say, almost snobism. And, and, and I think that you, you appreciate it in, in, in kind of in, in, in Britain by, you know, some of this, you know, you don't care about what you wear, like the British aristocracy and all that. So it's like, almost like, you know, you, you're kind of, you know, you're beyond brands, so to speak. So you, you've, you've kind of gone through that, through that process. And, and I think you value more like heritage, authenticity, timelessness than, than in other parts of the world. I think the U.S., I think that is a really exciting market for luxury and where um, a, a lot of innovation is coming from. Uh, it's probably understood in the more classical way of luxury and aspirational and, and belonging to a community or or to a tribe. I think that, again, um, I mean, some wealth displays uh, in America will be considered kind of complete no-nos in Europe, right? But, um, but you know, it, it, it's, it's, for me, I find it a really exciting uh, a market for luxury. Now, in Asia, that's where they, as you said, Matteo, where the levels of service are uh, out of this world. There is a, there is two sides, I think, to Asia. One is like the most sophisticated uh, customer and the one that appreciates, I mean, from Japan, for example, they appreciate craft to a level that is not um, equal to anywhere else. And then we also have a very kind of growing and massive, more aspirational customer of luxury, which is doing luxury 101, like I will call it, right? Uh, they're just new to the new to the whole concept, and that has happened over the last few years, particularly in China, you know, which now constitutes the largest uh, customer of, 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 of luxury in the world. And finally, you mentioned India, which I think is still relatively small as a, as a um, as a percentage of the luxury uh, consumer, but uh, I think they will become bigger and bigger as a consumer group uh, or as a consumer, as a geography. And I think it will be really interesting because I feel that they have an appreciation for craftsmanship uh, in, in, in their DNA. And there is such an abundance of crafts in India that will be a really interesting um, uh, uh, group to, to, to be a bigger part of the luxury conversation um, globally. I think those are remarkable answers because they summarize a perspective of choice, uh, optionality, and luxury being a almost a private thing for you and what is meaningful for your life from Mateo's direction. And then Sagra, you, you put that into the geography of cultures and how those cultures value luxury. So Asia, the luxury that they're known for is their service. Like they are exceptional in the service offerings. Europe, it's quality. When you, when you talk about uh, London, you think instantly Savile Row, bespoke, transcending brands, the quality mm. of an experience, the quality of materials, which by definition, as, as you were alluding to, was sort of the genesis, you know, back in the 80s and 90s was about the quality of materials. And so that's a fundamental to the culture uh, in the UK and Western Europe. 
when you talk about India, you talk about opportunity and craftsmanship and creativity and growth and an emerging middle class and the idea that luxury can be had. When you think, of, think about the United States, you think about luxury uh, being about prosperity and the American dream and attainment of wealth, et cetera. So it's clear by definition, the global landscape perceives luxury very differently. And as an individual consumer, uh, you have choice in the luxury that you are consuming. So I, I thought that was a very, really insightful collaboration of insight there that we could piece together. Well, you've summarized it beautifully this morning. So, yeah, yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. No, I, it was a, that was an enlightful um, point of the conversation. <laughs> um, so, I, I know we have uh, you know some some fundamental questions that we want to get through, um, but it was it was I think a great springboard to when you think of keywords around luxury and we use the words like choice or we use the words like prosperity or quality, et cetera. Mateo, when I give you the word experiential marketing, because in a way we all are that and we all are uh, purveyors and we all are practitioners. When you think of experiential marketing, having defined different cultures and different geographies and tribes, having different definitions of luxury, what does experiential marketing mean to you? Let's start from what experiential marketing is not. It's not the box of cereal with the crosswords at the back, which is what <laughs> most uh, marketing agencies will try to convince you, which is uh, just, just play with it. And that is experiential marketing. Ah, that might be a little bit reductive. And let's take it to the opposite side. So uh, yesterday night I couldn't sleep, so I picked up this book. Now, this is an Italian book, and it's written by one of the top physicists uh, in Italy. He's called Carlo Rovelli, and it's called Helgoland. And what this book is all about is quantum physics. And I know absolutely nothing about quantum physics, Cody. So that's why I'm reading it, because I'm ignorant about it. One of the best definitions he finds of quantum physics and all his incredible things is uh, the fact that the world is relational. Meaning, something could be anything, but it becomes what it is because it's in relation to something else. Now, if we take that very complicated uh, notion from physics and we apply it to marketing, my question this morning when I was uh, thinking after reading was what changes in my life before and after the purchase of a product? Can we think of experiential marketing as an element of relation with the product you are looking to cons considering buying, looking to buy, actually buying, using and talking about and what happens after you don't have that product anymore or after the relationship with your brand has stopped? So I'd like to look at experiential marketing as uh, the whole marketing funnel, the whole channel of first engagement to abandonment of that relationship. And so the transformative value of the engagement with the product, what happens when I start dreaming of buying my first Ferrari? What happens when I'm trying to make the money to buy that Ferrari? What happens when I go to the dealership with that Ferrari? What happens when I get invited to an event by the dealer 
who's trying to make me buy the Ferrari, making it possible for me. And the first time I drive it, and when I invite my friends to drive with me, and when I go to the uh, meeting of the Ferrari owner, and then I receive my first magazine, and there is an interview about me inside, and then I go to buy my second one, and then I sell my first one, and I cry because it was a stupid idea. I should have kept it for my son. This means experiential marketing. I, so in a way, experiential marketing can be a a matter of chemistry almost tapping in totally, totally. tap tapping into the way human psychology and literally the biology in your body reacts to psychological engagement, physical engagement, social engagement. You know, so the best experiential marketing actually happens deep in the back of the brain prior to it coming forward and, and touching exactly you got it it touching your fingertips that's a a very uh insightful way for any person or brand that is thinking about developing connectivity a great place for them to think about how to start and where to begin strategizing for tactics and thought process that is going to be able to deliver an experience unique to their offering, unique to their brand. Um, well said, I appreciate that. And same for you, Sagra, when, when you look at the world and you look at the world of, of service offering and product and even Ferrari, when we talk about that, they're constantly coming out with new and better. And that seems to be what drives us as consumers is new, better, uh, more technical, more sophisticated, and, and conversely for certain products, more simple, you know, more pared down. So when I throw the word innovation to you, what does that spark in terms of luxury in your mind? Well, it's innovation is uh, a critical ingredient of um, of luxury and, and for society, I would say, right? And I think that we are seeing a lot of innovation in, um, you know, the usage of products, a lot of innovation on the intersection of technology and luxury. Uh, we're seeing innovation in business models. We're seeing innovation in materials. I think that the whole, um, sustainability and, you know, recycled materials or, uh, you know, um, lab diamonds, lab developed diamonds, or, you know, leather from apples or from mushrooms or from seaweed. Those are, those are real innovations that are starting to, you know, permeate the world of luxury. I mean, some, some things will remain the same, but I think is what gets us, um, you know, interested and, and, provides the narrative for a lot of brands um, and providers to engage in that experiential marketing with their, with their customers. I think extremely well said and, and a perfect point is innovation. I'm summarizing what you're saying is innovation is adapting to the consumer's desires and needs. So culturally, we're becoming more conscious, you know, so leather, we want more sustainability, we want more eco friendly material. And you see this in uh, shoemakers and bag makers, and they're coming up with, like you said, material out of, of fruit 
and hmm. and vegetables and you know man-made I, I think that is a, a perfect example not only of innovation from a, at a technical level but also innovation from a psychological level of how to bring about real change to some of these practices and deliverables uh, that are sustainable. Uh, so you touch on really two amazing points is that innovation is not just summarized by a better technology or better tangible goods. It's also in the way that we think and the way that we adapt to our consumers. Uh, really well pointed out and appreciated. Uh, and I think it, it segues perfectly with our next topic, which is we, we are in conversation all day long with individuals uh, and we have a lot of research and all of us independently have people and teams researching. Our research, our research has established that we are seeing a popularization in independent financial literacy education outside the classroom and the democratization of investment opportunities that have typically been reserved for the already ultra wealthy. Are you noticing this trend in your respective fields and how do you think it will impact the luxury space going forward? Matteo, we'll start with you. I definitely see it. The change is coming and it's coming fast, incredibly fast. And it's coming with passion. It's coming with people feeling invested. So what they learned and what they see and the tools they have in their hands make them active doers and active choosers. Um, it's not anymore uh, a passive recipient uh, taking the world, the words of the brands and saying, I believe you, right? Mm -hmm. We are starting to see an incredible high level of engagement and investment. Uh, gone are the days of pure hedonism and uh, trust funds uh, and just let's go out and have fun. People want involvement, they want to create, they want to have a say, and they are willing to put their time to discuss their beliefs with the provider of luxury to create something together. And I think it's something you see very well in the uh, homes and mansions uh, conversations, right? It's something... It, that people want to be a part of, not just look at. Yeah. Great point. So it almost goes back to your, oh, sorry, Sagar, I apologize to cut you off. Oh. Um, why don't you, <laughs> you take it and then I'll, I'll jump in. I, I, I think that also something to mention or to or to remark is that um, that has to do with innovation as well and with this this uh, question is the um, what you just said is the whole point of collaborations, which has been a massive trend over the last few years of brands collaborating with each other uh, from different segments, from different, um, uh, you know, realms of, of life. So um, collaboration is, is uh, I think, here to stay because it fits really well with a kind of a new um, societal appreciation for doing things together and coming coming together. Um, and, you know, it taps a little bit into that democratization that you were talking about. I definitely think, you know, uh, what you just said, uh, more access to investment opportunities. Uh, and I think proof of that is the whole uh, uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency fever uh, or art or even re crypto real estate as is now becoming more and more 
uh, available to to many people and i think they're like you know some fortunes being made <laughs> at least in the short term let's let's see how how long this trend um uh, how or this asset you know establishes itself as a as a as a true um you know, more mainstream asset, but it's a start. We're starting to see it. I mean, we're buying, you know, NFTs, and my friend just bought some bots in a in one of these virtual worlds. So, so there is, and she's building a house there. So, yeah. a virtual house. So, there is much more uh, democratization in, in in those, in, you know, that is available thanks to, you know, the the move to digital into a digital economy ac across the world. I wonder if we're going to see right. virtual private planes, Mateo. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't yet, but. If you, if you say, if you give me the right price, I'll have one for you tomorrow. <laughs> I think it's uh, next. I, I, I think, think it's coming next. To summarize so. your thoughts. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Sagres. I think. A lot of people have been on the sidelines, you know, let's let's say of a certain vintage or a perspective, and they've they've they said Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. It's almost a, it's a it's a concept that is almost unbelievable. It's mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, beyond the realm of a lot of people's logic. But here we are and yeah. it's it's taken hold. Uh, and like you said, who knows what that looks like? Is it a moment in time or is it something? Uh, that's going to be with us forever. Um, you know, I think that's a matter of perspective and opinion, known as a crystal ball. But I think a lot of people, unless you are a believer from the onset, are are in shock that we've made it this far and that the conversation has lasted this long. Uh, so uh, I think that we don't know. Nobody has a crystal ball. Uh, I think if you are looking at today's woke culture and and consumers that are being as you said mateo uh they are challenging you know uh identity and opportunity uh, and i think your your summarization of luxury which is luxury is having a choice that is what we are seeing at mass scale you know the mm. the world at large is saying no i want to have a better knowledge base i want to have better access to opportunities they are they're pushing the threshold uh mm. i think sagara as you pointed out innovation and collaborations and re-engineering the brand identity is paving the way for people to have such choice or have such opportunity so I think we are in, 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 in our infancy uh, as we grow into this new society of consumerism and luxury consumerism to, be, to begin with. I think what's most exciting is that it's not just reserved for the already ultra wealthy. Yeah. You know, the world is orienting itself towards um, having more and knowing more and having access to more information and opportunity. Um, social media is a big mm. part of that, in our opinion. Uh, I think social media has made it virtually impossible to not glorify an often unobtainable lifestyle. 
In fact, I, I'm sure uh, intellectually you all know and have all heard conversations about people who are advocating for restricting social media to a degree so that it doesn't misinform or misperceive generations to come. So in your opinion, Sagra, we'll start with you. How do you see social media's role in today's definition of luxury? And do you see it evolving in the future? Well, yes. Um, uh, I think we, going back to what we were saying right before, I mean, there is also a lot of wealth and wealth inequality that is being talked about today. And I think social media has a lot to do with that perception of this huge disparity in wealth. Um, it's clearly, I mean, it has been the revolution, I think, in the last few years, social media, what has done to marketing and what has done to luxury and to society in general. Um, I think that, you know, the biggest change that I'm starting to see, and it's a very, very early days, is, is a narrative that social media is not real. So we're starting to see some touches of that and in, 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 in a bigger appreciation by some consumers that this is all a tale because obviously you're only showing the best part of your life to everyone else. That's not real life. So I, I think it's a very, very early so far. And I think, you know, maybe COVID has accelerated that a bit in the sense that we didn't have the opportunity to many people going to a private plane or a holiday destination. And it was even well regarded to show those images, right, of those displays of wealth and of, I would say, I don't know if you should call it privilege or, 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 or whatever. It was not appropriate even to the situation. So maybe we are starting to look at, you know, and I'm starting to see, for example, some feeds that are a little bit less curated. The imagery looks a little bit more authentic and more real. So uh, maybe I think that if we will trend towards that to a, to a more authentic um, uh, vision of life through social media. So, Saga, would you say that social media is helping or hurting the world of luxury? Well, I think it's helped. I mean, I think it has helped it uh, from a communication standpoint and from an accessibility standpoint. Now, every trend has its counter trend, as we well know. So, you know, we've also seen the emergence of, you know, um, brands that trade on the kind of in the know and you know i'm i'm uh, involved with one of them it's a it's a luxury handbags brand and we have it's only word of mouth it's extremely discreet marketing you have to knock on the door to be accepted into the social media we need to and, and the way i put it to a friend of mine is like oh my god it's like no to buy a handbag is very complicated you really need to be very committed to buy this product because it takes forever to make. You need to know somebody that knows somebody that will introduce you to the designer. Then the designer decides whether it's okay to make the handbag and how do you want to make it and, and the timeline. So that has been a very kind of 
you know, successful business that almost nobody know and only the people that are in the know will know, right? So I think that there is some to that as well of being completely away from social media and very kind of underground luxury, so to speak, that is only for a few people that have that, <laughs> um, whether it's connectivity to know, right? And um, so, but but overall, I would say as a main industry trend, I mean, that's where the consumer, especially the young consumer lives today. They don't live anywhere else. They live in social media. So it's hugely relevant and important. Right. So still creating exclusivity in an otherwise transparent world. Mateo, how do you see social media, social media's role in today's definition of luxury? I see it in a slightly different way. Um, luxury is uh, more often than not a matter of uh, presenting yourself, right? It's part of your identity, it's part of your choices, also when you see when you are visible. Now, if I were living in uh, uh, the in, in the UK, like I am now, uh, say 200 years ago, and I was invited at the Queen's party, uh, the only room where my uh, visibility on luxury would be that specific room. And if I mm. wanted to know how to respond to the invite, what to wear, etc., I would buy a little Debrett's manual, read exactly all the protocol, and I cannot make a faux pas, and I will go in and make a spectacular uh, uh, show. Now, what is the problem? The problem is we are now uh, attending parties and being visible by people in a place where the rules are not written, the rules differ by groups who are judging you. And so the point you were making of being misinformed and oversaturated is actually about fragmentation of points of view, but all being in the same room. So it's like being in 75 parties at the same time. Now, if you were dressed for the queen, maybe you were not dressed for the fair or the pig, right? They are different environments. And what you wear and what you talk about and what you smell like and who are you engaging with and the words you use can be taken out of context. So the problem is not so much about luxury being relevant on social media, it absolutely is, is the chastised views uh, because different people will judge it differently that is making it so complicated to manage in a social media world. Yeah. Very interesting and I agree, even myself, I go on social media and I'm looking at the trends and I'm looking how people are responding. It's just utter chaos, it's confusion. So is that positive managed chaos because we're now we live in a world of pure accessibility to opportunities as we were talking about before or is it just like nothing are we going is, in nothing is positive or negative Cody. you just have to embrace it that's a that's just how it is right somebody will love your latest lamborghini sometimes someone will say you're a bit of a show-off right? right it and you just say you're right. I like to show the love I poured into buying my latest Lamborghini. And you just have to accept it. The problem is not so much people commenting on it is uh, for a lot of young people, especially the pressure it puts on you. Mm. So it's not so much people liking or disliking, agreeing or disagreeing, having an opinion about things is, will that have an impact on how you see yourself? And can that break people who are less confident, right? So that is the real problem. We will all have different propositions out in the world, but it's, can we take the commentary back? 
It's fascinating. In my world, the wealthiest people I know who are all about experiences and have the highest quality of homes and travel and they, they are, they aren't on social media or if they are, they have 570 followers and they've posted maybe 10 times. So there's a very bizarre, uh, I'd say bifurcation of popularization through social media, but, uh, and an aspiration to become this luxury consumer or this ultra wealthy individual, but the people who are, and maybe it's a generational thing or a divide, um, they aren't partaking. They're not engaging with social media and maybe they are, they're going through their feeds, but they're not actively participating. So how does a brand, uh, how does a, a service provider access those mavens, those people who aren't participating on social media, but yet the brands are using this vehicle and, and pouring a tremendous amount of resources into this vehicle, and they are not touching the people that they actually want to be touching. You'll be surprised, Cody. Uh, we did a bit of research and 85% uh, of all the ultra high net worth individuals uh, we had in our list, etc., was actually on Instagram. As you say, they're just not posting. So it is a medium, it is perceived, it is used, that they simply don't want to have a voice in it sometimes because of not being judged. Uh, what you see, though, is that you can still spread uh, new imagery, uh, new concept, new uh, proposals there, and the pickup and the vocalization of it, of course, might happen into a different place. So it might, you will not see an, an immediate conversion on the channel, which is what... Uh, Facebook would love, of course, because they mm. make a percentage, but you will see them appearing from somewhere else. So again, it's the multi-channel approach to marketing that is going to be the critical one and understanding the role of each channel in your media mix for telling a part of the story and not the full story. Completely makes sense. Sagar, when you're dealing with the brands and advising and consulting with them, do you feel that social media is uh, a must-have from a tactical perspective, or do you feel like it's a necessary evil now in the repertoire of marketing? Well, Cody, I think that is a little bit of a, it depends on the brand. There is no, I mean, there is no one single rule. I mean, you have very successful brands and very relevant brands and very influential brands that have no social media presence whatsoever, right? And um, other brands that because of their customer lives in that uh, space and that's where they communicate is, is incredibly relevant to have, to have that. Sometimes you use it a little bit as a tool to show part of your brand um, to some customers that maybe are not your core customers, but potentially can be. I think there's one say, I, get, I cannot remember who said it, that you have to market as if you only had 100 clients and those are your customers and that's one of the kind of uh, best ways to market. You just focus on your 100 clients and then those will be the ones that do the job for you, uh, becoming your your uh, ambassador, so to speak. So, I, you know, I see that a little bit as a model as well on some of the businesses that we that we've invested on um, to, to have a pretty sharp mm. focus mm. and interact at a very 
personal basis with those uh, uh, special customers. Right. You, you said something earlier that I agree with, uh, and I think it's, it's a well-pointed-out comment that social media has almost stimulated this revolution, has perpetuated the, the conversation around the wealth divide. Mm. And in the U.S., the political climate and its discourse has reached a new level of prominence in the news and in our homes, and we have seen many brands and service providers take stances on political views, instances, and beliefs that can both strengthen and damage their connections with their customers. What is your outlook on luxury brands taking meaningful stances on societal matters? And will this be a shift in marketing for a long time to come? Matteo, why don't we start with you? Listen, uh, luxury and wealth uh, can be easily portrayed negatively and there's always been people who've been attracted to the uh, opportunities that wealth brings and people who've been demanding uh, for more equal distribution of wealth and so seeing uh, wealthy individuals as a negative element of the society right so politics inequality identity definition subcultures all these topics are by definition polarizing because people have different opinions about them now, as a brand, what you need to do is do honest marketing. Talk about what you really believe in as an individual. And it is realistically true that we all need to put some more responsibility and embed better models in our luxury practices. Mm -hmm. uh, if we can do more investments in sustainable luxury, if we can treat people correctly, if we can embed diversity in the marketplace, uh, in our representations, all this can and should be included in the luxury conversation because luxury brands are not a thing of a different life. They're part of everyone's life because they are now shared on platforms like social media or common magazines, etc. They have become a matter of everyone's discourse. So they need to be respectful they need to be engaging with the problems and not trying to hide uh, the problems exist when we had the the cases of the uh, sexual harassments in fashion that needs to be sorted when you have the representational issues of different races ethnic groups uh, etc when you had uh, uh, all the uh, cultural appropriation all these topics need to be sorted out and it's a good thing that they're all coming up and luxury as every other industry needs to take it on board and do better Sagra, do you agree with Matteo? And do you think that these types of stances that these brands are taking are here to stay? Well, I think it's a, it's a relatively new thing that brands and companies in general take such a definitive you know, stances on some kind of social matters. And I think it's part of the whole corporate social, CRS, corporate social you know, responsibility ethos that is you know permeating through the corporate world uh in the investment world as well um i think i think it is gonna stay um that trend of a of a more um of shall we say the role of a brand in that in society or of a co corporate in society is going to become more relevant because let's not forget that a lot of institutions that provided some guidance and some um, 
I would say, backbone to society have disappeared or are disappearing. And brands generally are, are they're all about trust and, and trusting. So I think there is a certain um, level of responsibility for brands to, you know, speak up and 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 do things things better for the world and for society. I think for some of them comes very authentic. Uh, for some of them, uh, I think it's a kind of working process in the sense that they are trying and but they're still trying to figure out how do we address or how do we position ourselves. Um, I think it's probably, as you said, a little bit more relevant in the US than in other parts of the world. I mean, that's my experience uh, as well, that in Asia, these conversations are not happening quite as much as maybe <clears throat> in America or, or uh, and in Europe either, because the circumstances are different as well, right? Uh, but for some brands, I think they're doing actually a really good job because it feels very authentic. I mean, I, I will highlight, I don't know, Patagonia, for example, it's always been part of their DNA to have, you know, a stance on, you know, it's not a luxury brand, but it's a, it's a, it's a well-regarded uh, brand uh, in the outdoors space. And, and for me, it feels like really authentic and meaningful what they're doing. And I think more and more brands I mean, the Caring Group has a big, you know, sustainability initiative across the group, which I know they're doing a lot of work uh, to make the company more and more uh, responsible and sustainable. And, and, and they have their fingers in many pots and, and one of them will become the core to their DNA in the future as well. So I do think that this attitude is here to stay. Yeah, I think that when you look at a brand like Patagonia, which is a perfect example, yeah, when you see them post and take a, a definitive stance on an event, you read the comments and there are plenty of people in the comment section that are like, I will never buy from you again. I will never engage with your brand again. And then there are other people who are like, I'm going to buy 10 times more than I did. You know, so I think that some brands and I'm a tell I'm curious to hear your thoughts. It's, it's almost a rock and a hard place because maybe there's an authentic desire to comment and, and state, this is our stance. This is our belief, but they jeopardize, you know, many of their consumers to become disenfranchised, to become agitated. And the comment is, stick to selling clothes or stick to whatever it is that I'm doing with you. Mm. So how do you feel that, you know, the, the strengthening of that type of intention, Mateo, as you were saying that you, you say sort of dive in head first, like have more responsibility, take a stance. Do you think that is going to jeopardize some of the perspective of the brand? And how do you feel it will strengthen, you know, the, the already happy consumer base? It depends whether you're doing it to just to be on the bandwagon and just get an extra few likes or an extra few clicks, or if you're doing it because it was just how you always did it. Uh, people were jumping on uh, on something because uh, it seems to be trendy. Is they're doing the wrong thing? Uh, brands that are simply taking a stance because uh, the community 
they contribute to feels that that is a predominant issue, they will do the right things. And uh, you will always have a reference community that buys from you, that likes you, etc. Um, try to think of the petrol heads as a community. And again, I go back to cars just because you have a car behind you, Cody. So there's no other reason. That's the only thing I can think of. That Cody maybe likes cars. Is the only Lamborghini. <laughs> and uh, so think of that. If uh, uh, car, the car industry, and the, is talking to its consumer base and is going to release electric cars. Bentley's is releasing electric cars. Uh, uh, Maserati is looking into it. Ferrari is looking into it, etc. Things are going to change. People are going to adapt, right? Brands need to be part of the evolution of their community. There's no hiding. Otherwise, they disappear. They become irrelevant. How you make yourself an ambassador of a topic or simply a follower of a natural evolution, that is a different definition. So you can be an activist on a yeah. topic or you can be simply participating and recognizing that the world changes and you need to stay with the world and, and take a... Uh, uh, notice and of what are the consumer sensibilities and respect those so the advice be authentic be Absolutely. authentic to who you, who you are and what you stand for and and perpetuate those beliefs but don't do it because the bandwagon says you should be doing it no. yeah exactly and i would say so you you use the word adapt um but go ahead saga sorry Sorry, no, I, I was also on this note of brands that have done so authentically, I feel it's uh, um, Nike, for example, that with, it, with um, the kind of Black Lives Matter uh, situation and they, they did a very, very kind of aggressive, well, I, I will, I'm not sure I will call it aggressive, a very kind of uh, determined, uh, you know, statement and move actually quite early on in the whole process and uh, i think that it's paid that they have definitely lost some customers i'm 100 percent certain of that but they have won the loyalty of many other customers in a much more uh, uh, you know in, in a stronger way or in a more committed way so i think that they you know brands are you know braver today than they have ever been uh, on, on these issues. That, that's a great example. Uh, and it's, it's what we call the intangibles of luxury. Uh, we have always felt that the consumer, today's consumer, the young consumer, maybe did not place such high value on these intangibles of luxury. And what I mean by that are the quality of the communication they receive, the industry insight, the product knowledge, the energy, the intention, the discretion, et cetera, all the things that sort of are the cornerstone of what people think of when they think luxury without the tangibility of it. So these brands uh, are leaning into these intangibles in a more overt way, but some service providers are having to adapt at a faster pace than they perhaps would like. So how does a luxury service provider adapt to the changing needs of their new consumer base? I think it's all about building trust. Uh, 
trust is based on the tangibles, the house you're selling them, as well as the intangibles. How you, what you're wearing, uh, the words you use, uh, the quality of your contracts, uh, the definition of uh, um, uh, that, that you use when you're describing an item, etc. Trust is what wins you the premium price as much as the product. And all the intangibles are part of the product in the way you get to it. So I do think that the, the two cannot go, uh, they cannot be separated. Well said. Sagra, any thoughts? Yeah, I think, I mean, you, you mentioned the word trust, which is probably one of the most uh, important words and principles in the world today. <laughs> I don't know if it's undervalued, but um, that's very important. The other thing that you mentioned something, Matteo, that I think is relevant to this, uh, to this question is that, you know, brands in the past, they will tell you what to do. I mean, and I remember when I was writing a lot at, at JP Morgan, I would say it's like, you know, brands are a little bit of a dictatorship, you know, that you, we are going to tell you customer exactly what you need to do and how do you need to dress and what do you need to buy and you are going to do that right uh, and that I guess paradigm has changed because now customers are much more involved with brands via that kind of experiential marketing or you know the, the dialogue I mean brands are consulting with customers about which products to la to to launch in which campaigns like better or not and you know from from magazine brands to 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 uh, you know jewelry you know customers are much more involved with brands today than even just 10 or 15 years ago um when yeah, they were truly uh, they were telling customers what they wanted before the customers knew themselves and today i think brands and, and creative directors are taking much more from what do the customer want and identifying and defining those customers, identifying those communities and defining those customers, not just in the basis of demographics of age and wealth and, and, um, and uh, geography, uh, but much more in, 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 on the basis of values. And I think that that's, the, that's a kind of big differentiator um, on how to, how to adapt. When you start to look at your customers uh, as a kind of communities that are aligned um, according cert certain values that are consistent with the values of your brand. And I think that that is a kind of a new, a, a little bit of an innovation right now on how to, how to kind of evolve and adapt to, to, to a more interactive world between brands and customers. That, that is a very insightful comment on what's changing in the luxury space and how brands are now theoretically revising their DNA almost, mm -hmm. right? They're, they're adaptive. They're, re, they're perhaps a little bit more reactive in the way that they're interacting and engaging their consumer base. So with that in mind, what do you feel is the future? What's next? What's the outlook for the luxury space in today's environment? Really love the question, Cody. <laughs> uh, it's always the one that gets me more excited because I can say things and then uh, one year later say the opposite. And I love that. 
Um, so today, how I feel about it is uh, we are looking into selective luxury, which means uh, that not because I have the money, I need to buy everything from luxury. It's uh, it can be simple, it can be a commodity, it can be a comforting piece, uh, and I'm, it will be absolutely fine. I think that in the future of luxury, there is a bigger scope for simplification. Simplifying choices will be the driver to win customers, either work on less worrisome consumption or working on more passionate consumption based on what you're really into. So removing friction and simplifying choices. I see um, more polarized buyers which is echoing the other two points, right? It's really you care about something or you don't. Either you want to spend time selecting it and enjoying it, or you, you're just buying it and let's not talk about it, right? Because eventually what I see in the future is that with the amount of pressure there is on every one of us, with the amount of uh, uh, stimulations we have, time has not increased. We're still on 24 hours a day, and we can only do that by choosing more and by choosing wisely. Sagar, how, how do you feel and what do you think the future of luxury will be? Well, I think, uh, number one, I think luxury will continue to exist and will continue to thrive as a, as a concept and as, a, as, a, as an industry. Um, I agree with you. Uh, Mateo, in terms of polarization, I think polarization is another kind of super trend that I think that we are seeing in, in, in manifesting a polarization of customers, a polarization of brands. There is like such a huge uh, proliferation of brands, products across categories, price points, uh, across everything that I will always see the need for curation uh, intensifying because customers get overwhelmed. So, you know, in regards, for example, of real estate, I could see the emergence of like very dedicated one-on-one -on -one, uh, relationships that just focus on you. So you don't have to look at all the houses in the world that they will just present you with a curated selection that is just for you. So curation, I think, will be or pre-selection will be an important part of, uh, of, of luxury in, in the future. Um, and then from, um, I guess, from an investment point of view, uh, what I wonder and what I think may be starting uh, as well is whether we will get over this overvaluation of growth and that growth is now going to be absolutely everything. And that has been the case for the for for the you know for the last few years that the only thing that you care and overvalued was growth. And now I'm looking at growth and when companies grow too fast I get really scared and I kind of was like can can we just grow now nicely and sustainable and every year and no no huge highs and lows and in a way that is more yeah, more sustainable and more profitable for for everyone and more thoughtful and i think that some of the most highly valued brands in the world are definitely not the ones that are growing the fastest but they are the ones that have you know grown and built their businesses in a very thoughtful way and, and considered way right so i think that that's going to be 
you know, probably something that we'll see more and more in the future. I know that I walk away from this conversation feeling more informed. Uh, and I look at my own business on, on the comments that you just said, Sagra, and it gives me um, a big smile because I think that the way of the future, the changing definition of luxury is about thoughtfulness and sustainability and having a choice, as you say, Mateo. Um, so I'd like to thank you both tremendously for all of the time, obviously, and the wisdom and insight that you have imparted. I think the, the world of luxury is a better place now that we've had this conversation. And I'm sure a lot of people are going to walk away feeling uh, a deep amount of insight and gratitude for both of you for your remarks. Um, I want to conclude this thought leadership uh, conversation. Uh, I hope to have you on another one. Uh, I am excited for it. So if anyone has any questions, please visit us on our social media platforms. And if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at talks at bespoke luxury magazine.com. Thank you both. Um, have a great evening over in London. Uh, and I wish you well. Thank you. Thank you, Cody. Thank you so much.